0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 Sixth Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, again, another as, as Pastor Steve I think said earlier, huge thank you to Grace Community Church at Bigelow for letting us use their facilities two weeks in a row because it was 92 degrees. In our sanctuary back home, but the AC units are supposed to be getting installed tomorrow. Praise God, and we can go back home uh, and not die of heat exhaustion, right? If you're a Christian, you're trying to avoid the heat. If you get what I'm saying, right? So, like, we don't we don't like 92 degree buildings. Uh, But yeah, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter two, verses 18 through 22. And this evening in this passage, we come to uh, a a short interaction Jesus had with some people about fasting. But before we get into that text. I want to talk about legalism. Right, legalism. This is a word that many of us are familiar with, but some of you uh, might not be. Don't worry, we're going to define it. Um, but it's a word that plays a big role in our understanding of the text this evening. Now there's a couple of different things that we could mean whenever we talk about legalism. But this evening, I want us to think about this particular meaning of legalism. A system of religious thought and observance Where the adherent tries to make himself right with God, tries to save himself, try to make himself righteous in God's eyes by rule keeping, by rule keeping. Legalism has been a problem ever since mankind fell into sin in Genesis 3, right? You might say that legalism is the natural religion of all human beings, right? We are born legalists and it's only by the grace of God that we become Christians, think about it though in the world the general thinking of people is this nothing is free if you want something good then you're going to have to work for it right our parents taught us this and 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 when it comes to temporal worldly things that is often true if you want a home you're going to have to work for it if you want a vehicle you're going to have to work for it right like that's just how it goes very rarely do you get things just given to you but then people take that idea into religion do they not if I'm really good, if I'm really obedient, then I can expect God to love me and save me and forgive me, particularly because I have done so much good. But if I'm disobedient, then God will hate me and do bad for me. If I want something good from God, like forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then I must work for it just like I had to work for my house. Right? Legalism is natural to us. That this kind of thinking just makes sense with our fallen human reasoning. This thinking that we have to earn God's grace since it seems like we earn everything else. Right? Like, just consider every other religion in the world. Every other religion is some kind of a works based system that says if you do X, whatever X is, maybe it's a ritual, some kind of good work that we would actually look at and say, no, like on the surface, that is actually a good thing that person did. But every religion is if you do X, whatever X is, then God will love you. Then God will show you favor, forgive you of your sins, give you eternal life, etc. Even in our area, right down the road from here, there are forms of false Christianity that say if you have faith in Jesus plus obey God in all these different ways, then you'll be saved. Even people that don't follow any organized religion say things like this. Tell me if you've ever heard this. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I raise my kids well. I don't hurt other people. I'm not addicted to dope. I'm a law abiding citizen. Surely I'm good with God. After all, I'm a good person. But compare that, that legalistic thinking, to the message of Jesus Christ. Compare that kind of thinking to biblical Christianity. The Scriptures tell us, no, you're not a good person. You're a sinner. And there's no amount of good things or obedience to God that you can render that's going to take away your sins. You're guilty for transgressing the law of God and you deserve God's wrath for eternity in hell. And if you're going to be forgiven, the Scriptures tell us that it's going to have to be on God's terms by God's unmerited favor found exclusively in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us over and over again in both Testaments, old and new, that man cannot make himself right with God by obedience, but by faith alone in Christ alone. The Scriptures tell us that Christ has taken our sins on Himself and suffered for them in our place on the cross as God the Father poured His wrath out on God the Son in our place. The Scriptures also tell us that Christ in our place has perfectly obeyed the law of God that we have broken and that He will give us His righteousness. He will give us His perfect obedience and law-keeping if we trust in Him that He has done it for us. The, The Bible tells us that our being made right with God cannot come from our obedience because we've already broken the law. You can't unbreak something. You've already broken the law. But, the Bible tells us that salvation will come to all those who believe God's promise that Christ has won their salvation by His works. By His life, death, and resurrection. But for all that knowledge that we have, for all that knowledge that we have about what the Word of God teaches us, legalism can still creep into our hearts. And we can, maybe even unknowingly, start to revert back to our natural religion, our natural way of thinking about God and our relationship to Him being a relationship dependent upon our works and obedience. And for that reason, we constantly need reminded that the Gospel of Jesus Christ, His message, He Himself, is incompatible with a legalistic mentality. The gospel is incompatible with that kind of religious attitude that you have to earn it. And that's why the reminder found in our passage this evening is so important. That the joy found in believing in Christ and trusting Him for our entrance into the kingdom of God is absolutely incompatible with legalism. So, with that said, let's go to the Word of God. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Verse 18. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our most merciful God and Father, we come to you this evening and ask for your help as we look at a difficult passage. We ask that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit and give us minds that understand and hearts that love and believe your word. Show us, God of grace, that self-righteousness and legalism cannot coexist with your gospel. Help us to lean wholly on Christ and trust him alone for our right standing with you. But God, we ask that you would glorify yourself this evening through the preaching of your word. We ask for this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So some context for us before we get into this. Uh, Last week we saw Jesus and his disciples feasting with tax collectors and sinners. You guys will remember that. And we saw Jesus associating in that passage, we saw him associating with the lowest of the low and eating a meal with the worst sinners. Right, and eating a meal was a sign of fellowship with them. We saw Jesus showing them love and even calling a tax collector, Levi, who became known as Matthew, to be one of his close disciples. And the Pharisees were really, really angry with Jesus for doing this. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They thought that sinners like that should be avoided and that Jesus knew better than to associate with them. You'll remember that the Pharisees are a group of legalistic Jews, right? They followed a very works-based version of Judaism that is not taught in the Old Testament. They thought that people were accepted by God based on their obedience rather than by God's grace through faith in Him and His promises. The, the Pharisees rejected Jesus and opposed him every chance they got. And in fact, we're gonna be seeing here for the next few weeks in Mark chapter two, verses one through Mark three, verse six, there are five different times that the Pharisees face off with Jesus. Right? It's always going back and forth, and Jesus always makes them look foolish. Right? But so, so hold all that in your mind. That that the, the Pharisees and people like them are legalists. They want to earn their salvation and they hate Jesus. They reject Jesus, and they reject His message of salvation by grace alone. And they reject Him. One of the reasons is because He refuses to follow their man-made traditions and rules that they believe make people righteous in God's sight. Jesus refuses to be a legalist, and they hate Him for it. But our text begins by telling us that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And that a group of people go to Jesus and begin a conversation with Him about fasting. So we need to know a little bit of background information on fasting or this might not make a whole lot of sense to you. The the historical context is incredibly important for us to understand this passage. But fasting, biblically speaking, uh, is not like a social media fast or where you give up something small. Fasting biblically is intentionally going without food for the purpose of prayer or some other religious activity. In the Old Testament, fasting was often associated with repentance or national mourning And in the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the old covenant, the Jewish people were commanded to fast only once a year on the Day of Atonement. You guys have heard of the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, right? That's what we're talking about. That's the Day of Atonement. You can also read uh, in Zechariah 8, because I know you guys read Zechariah all the time. Uh, You can read in Zechariah 8 where it seems like after the exile, the Jews had adopted about four extra days of national fasting as well. But the only commanded day, as far as I can understand, the only commanded day was on the Day of Atonement. And people could fast more often than that if they chose to do so, and many people did for different reasons throughout their life. But again, it was only commanded in the law of God, that one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And as I just said, in the Old Testament, fasting was most often associated with some kind of mourning, some kind of yearning or longing for God. Uh, most of the time, it was coupled with grieving over sin and mourning it. It was a sign of repentance. Again, that's why they fasted on the Day of Atonement. And other times, though, it was a sign of seriousness with God, you could say. Um, you, you would fast whenever you were in dedicated prayer, asking God to be faithful to his promises or to intervene in your life personally or in the life of national Israel. It was a sign of dependence upon God where the person fasting was basically saying, I need God more than I need food. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting. Jesus was not anti-fasting. He fasted for 40 days in the wilderness himself. We just read in the last chapter. And not only that, but after all, the old covenant under the old covenant, God commanded all of His people to fast once a year. So, there's nothing wrong with fasting. But our text says that the Pharisees were fasting, and John's disciples. Now, if the Pharisees are doing something in the Bible, pay attention, because it's probably not good most of the time, at least. And but the Pharisees, they didn't fast just once a year or even a few times a year. The Pharisees actually fasted twice a week, on Monday and Thursday. And, and they did this in accordance with their extra-biblical traditions, with their traditions that weren't found in the Bible, the traditions of the elders. And they expected, expected all those who were going to be righteous in God's eyes to fast twice a week as well. Right? It, I can't stress this enough. It was not viewed as optional for the Pharisees. It was a requirement if you were going to be righteous. And in their mind, you had to fast twice a week. For the Pharisees, fasting was a badge of their personal holiness, and they were very, very, very proud of their righteousness. They viewed it as one rule among hundreds of other rules that you needed to obey in order to be right with God and be accepted by Him. And you may be thinking, where do you get that idea? That sounds a little bit excessive that they would think fasting makes them right with God. I think uh, we see the Lord Jesus tell us this in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. You can write that down and read that in your own time. We don't have time this evening. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. You can read that parable. And in the parable, the Pharisee is praying, kind of to himself really, and The Pharisee lists some of the ways that he is not like other sinners, right? Reasons that he is righteous and reasons that he's acceptable to God. And in that list, he says, I don't commit adultery. I tithe everything that I get. I fast twice a week, right? So this tells us that according to Jesus, the Pharisees viewed their fasting as a means to be made right with God. And again, I want you to recognize that the Pharisees were complete and utter legalists. They did not have a category for grace. It was a graceless religion that they practiced. Everyone's relationship with God was based purely on obeying rules. But why why were John's disciples fasting, right? So I don't want us to get away from that, just real quick. Why were John's disciples mentioned in our text as fasting? Because John's disciples aren't necessarily Pharisees. Uh, Personally, I think it stands to reason that they had bought into this pharisaical legalistic mindset as well, though they weren't as bad as the Pharisees. I still think they bought into it. This question about fasting that, that they put to Jesus is not innocent, right? It's a bit of a veiled rebuke to Jesus. And in the parallel account of this, you can read in Matthew chapter 9, it's actually John's disciples who are presented as the antagonists to Jesus, as the ones who are going and questioning him, why don't your disciples fast? Right? Not only that, but as far as John's disciples are concerned, notice that they are still John's disciples. They're not Jesus' disciples. In the Gospel of John, you can read where John the Baptist publicly declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Right. You guys know that very famous passage, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John publicly declared that Jesus is the Son of God. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus and said, this is the Messiah. This is the guy. I've prepared his coming, but you all need to go to him. You need to look to him. He has been sent from God. He is the hope of Israel. Right? John directs people to follow after Jesus. And even in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, the Baptist basically says that it is his joy that Jesus' ministry is growing. He wants people to follow Jesus. He says that famous line, He must increase and I must decrease. Not only that, but at this point in the Gospel of Mark, John is already in prison. Chapter 1, verse 14 says John is already in prison. John's ministry is over, but these people are still John's disciples instead of Jesus' disciples. Personally and I'll fight you in the parking lot over it if you want to debate me. Uh, I think that they didn't listen to John. I don't think they listened to John. I don't think they believed what what John said about Jesus being the Son of God, being the Messiah, the Lamb of God who's come to save sinners. These disciples of John were maybe not as bad, but in some way they were sympathetic to the Pharisees and their view of legalistic religion. But a group of people, regardless, back to our text, a group of people... Probably a mix of John's disciples, Pharisees, and some common regular people. They approach Jesus and ask him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, this is not an innocent, truly inquisitive question. This is a thinly veiled rebuke at the Lord Jesus. They're basically saying, Why don't your disciples do the right things? Why aren't they doing the stuff that that our tradition tells us that you have to do if you're going to be righteous in God's eyes? You say you're preaching the kingdom of God, telling people how to enter into it. Why don't they do the things that they have to do in order to enter the kingdom of God? So Jesus answers their questions about fasting with a metaphor. A metaphor about a wedding, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. All right, now, a quick word about those weddings. Uh, weddings back then were not like our 20-minute ceremonies, followed by a reception that you probably didn't want to go to uh, for a few hours. Anyone else? Like, I'm, I'm a horrible minister. Like, I'll do the wedding, and then I just want to go home. No one else? Nah, I'm just kidding. If I've done your wedding, I'm sure it was f- so much fun in the reception. Um, <laughs> for real, I love you guys. Um, I'm just kind of a hermit, I guess. But no, it wasn't like our 20-minute ceremonies followed by a reception for a few hours, and then you go home, right? It's not like that. Weddings back then in that culture were a huge deal. It was this massive celebration where the bride and the groom were treated like royalty for a few days, up to a week, depending upon how wealthy the family was. Some weddings, the bride and groom would even wear crowns, right? It was a huge celebration, massive, almost a week long. Just picture it. With me, a beautiful Jewish wedding in the first century, a week long celebration full of food, good wine, music, dancing, and rejoicing. Now, how inappropriate would it be for there to be someone or a group of people at that wedding who were refusing to eat and celebrate with the bride and groom? How inappropriate would that be? Remember, fasting is a sign of mourning. It's a sign of asking God to intervene in a situation. I need you, Lord. It's not pleasant. Fasting is not something that you do when you're rejoicing. It would be incredibly inappropriate to fast at a wedding. That goes without saying. Right? It's not the right time to fast and it's not the right place for it. A wedding is a time to rejoice and celebrate. It's a party. Here in this metaphor, Jesus is saying that He is the bridegroom. And his disciples, his people, are the wedding guests. What he's saying is as long as he is physically with them, they can't fast. Meaning it's not appropriate for them to fast. It's not fitting that they would fast while Jesus is there. And why is that? Because Jesus' presence with his people is a time of joy. It's a time to celebrate. Christian, just real quick, is this not what we look forward to in the age to come? Being face to face with the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. It would be inappropriate for us to mourn and fast in that day. It's an eternal party, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus' main message is that the Kingdom of God has come. Right? We saw that in Mark chapter 1. That's His main message. The Kingdom of God has come and someday it will come in its fullness. And He is the King. And He is granting people entrance into that kingdom. That's His message. And Jesus has come. He's come to institute and bring in the kingdom of God. This is not a time of mourning. It's not a time of sadness for His people. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to rejoice because God is finally bringing to pass all of His promises. Right? Every promise that God has made is about to find its yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. God is bringing His promises to pass. It's a time to rejoice because the Messiah Jesus, the One who is to die and make atonement for the sins of the people of God, has come. It's time to rejoice and party because Jesus, the Son of God, has come to bring the new covenant. This new and unbreakable covenant that Jeremiah had prophesied. This covenant of grace by which all men have ever been saved was about to be ratified in the blood of Jesus. This is a time of rejoicing. It's a time of celebrating. Celebrating a time to mourn and fast because God is bringing about his promises through Jesus. As I I said earlier in this metaphor, Jesus is the bridegroom. I want to talk about that for a second. There's something interesting for us to see in Jesus referring to himself as the bridegroom that I don't think that the Pharisees got. I don't think they really understood necessarily what he was saying when he said that, but we can because we can read the Old Testament with Christ-centered lenses on, right? In the Old Testament, the Messiah is never, ever referenced as a bridegroom. He is all over the New Testament, right? Christ is the bride, bridegroom, rather. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. But in the Old Testament, especially in the latter half of Isaiah, and in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 19, God himself is called the bridegroom of his people. Jesus is saying that the true bridegroom of the people of God had come. Jesus is also claiming he is God. He's reiterating what Mark said in verse 1 of chapter 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now tell me. I'm laboring the point because it's beautiful. (laughs) Is it time to mourn or time to rejoice When God Himself visits His people in grace and love to keep His promises of saving them. Read Isaiah 40. God says He will come and save His people Himself. And Jesus is saying, I am that God. Is it a time to rejoice or mourn? It's a time of pure joy, of course. God has come and visited His people and He's come to save them Himself. And if you're taking notes, write this down. He has not come to give them more rules by which they can save themselves. Jesus has not come to give us another covenant of works like Adam broke. He has come Himself to save His people by His own work, by His own righteous life, and His own wrath-satisfying death on the cross. Jesus Christ has come to save His people by pure grace, received by faith alone in Him alone. But Jesus is saying to them, it's not fitting that they would fast right now because I'm here and because of what I've come to do. There's no reason for Jesus' disciples to ask God to intervene or to be near to them. God the Son is literally right in front of them. There's no, there's no reason for them to fast and ask God, send the Messiah you've promised. He's right there in front of them. God Himself is in their midst and He brings salvation. All right, it's time to feast not time to fast. But then in verse 20, Jesus does get a bit dark. He says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So real quick, Jesus is not against fasting. He says that there will be an appropriate time when his people will fast. That's us, All right? This is a reference to Jesus' death. He said when the bridegroom is taken away from them, this is violently taken away from them. More broadly though, I'm with R.C. Sproul on this, It's, it's a reference to Jesus not being physically present with his people after his ascension back to heaven. Jesus says that when he's not physically present with his people, then it will be appropriate for us to fast and mourn as we fight through the hardships of life and long for his return that we might see him face to face. Right, so this sermon, is not, <clears throat> this sermon is not really about fasting, but just real quick, fasting is still an occasional part of the Christian spiritual life. Right? And Read Matthew 6. Jesus says, when you fast, don't fast like the Pharisees. He assumes that we will. So Jesus is not against fasting, but says Jesus, today is not that day. Today is not that day, Pharisee. I am here so my people don't fast. They rejoice that I'm here. It's time to party. right? The, the Pharisees should not have been fasting at that time. Really, nobody who knew anything about the God of Israel should have been fasting in that time. Because God Himself, the groom of His people, is there in their midst. If they understood what was going on right before their eyes, if they understood who Jesus was or what God was finally bringing to pass, They would have rejoiced along with Jesus' disciples. But, instead, they rejected Him. They didn't believe that He was the Savior. They rejected His message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They they wanted to cling tightly to this legalistic, works-based righteousness form of religion that they really loved. Because they really thought they were righteous. They wanted to continue to believe that they could do enough to merit salvation from God. They wanted to continue to believe that they were good enough for God to accept them. So naturally, they rejected the Lord Jesus. And they refused to come to Him in faith. They were hard set. You could say they were hard set and their legalistic mindset they were convinced that they were righteous because they observed religious rituals and tradition they thought they were good enough for god because they fasted and they went to the synagogues and they gave their tithes and they wore the right clothes and they had the torah committed to memory and they and they watched their mouths and this and that and this and that and they thought that what they did was good enough That they were good enough because they did so much. They were so religious. As I said last week, and you're going to hear me say it in the next few weeks is this you? Is this you? Be honest with yourself. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, whether you consider yourself religious or not, I don't care. Ask yourself this question Is this you? It is so easy for us to buy into this poison of legalism. To look at our lives and all the things that we do. If, you're, if, if you don't consider yourself a believer, to look at your life and say, you know, I'm a good law-abiding citizen. And I do this and I do that. and I take care of my family and I work hard and all that. Or, or to, to look, if you're a Christian, to look at your church attendance and your tithing. And how much you read the Bible. And how often that you pray. And how active you are in church stuff. Or God help us, how reformed that you are. And start to think that that gets you points with God. I want to be clear, I'm not saying that God isn't pleased with those things. For His people, He is certainly pleased with our obedience and our service so long as it's out of a heart of gratitude. But I must ask, have you begun to, look, at, to the, look to those things as your righteousness? To look at the things like that. To look to them. The things that you do. The religious things that you do to make you acceptable to God. L- listen to me. Just being blunt with you, those things cannot save you. Those things can't make you right with God. They can't. You're a sinner. You you can't undo the sins that you've committed by doing a bunch of good stuff now. That's stupid. It's completely foolish. Consider this. It is completely foolish to know that you, by your sins, have virtually spit in the face of God and tried to rob him of his throne by saying, I will do what I please, I'll be the God of my own life. But then think that you can make it up to him by going to church and being nice to people and reading your Bible. That's stupid. And that's blasphemous. If you think you can make it up to God for all of your sins by doing a bunch of good stuff, you don't know who God is. You don't understand what it means that He is perfectly holy and that He hates sin. You can't make yourself right with God. That's a blasphemy. When you realize how sinful and awful that your sin really is, you'll realize how dumb that kind of thinking is. You don't need a list of do's and don'ts, you need a Savior. You don't need a book of rules to keep. You need a Savior. You need someone to take the wrath of God in your place so that you don't. You need someone to cover you in righteousness because you don't have any of your own. You need the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to do both of those things to all who come to Him in faith. You need a Savior, not a list of rules. But these legalistic Pharisees, they refuse to come to Christ. They refuse to acknowledge who He is. And they continue to cling to their works as to how they'll be made right with God. So a little bit of a recap before we go into these last two verses, just so you're clear on what's going on. The Pharisees are legalists. And they believe that their fasting plays a role in their right standing And acceptance with God. So they go to Jesus and they ask him, why don't your disciples fast? Because they believe that those who want to be right with God have to fast. And Jesus answered their question directly with his metaphor, right? He answered it directly with the bridegroom and wedding guest metaphor. But now, and again, there's a bit of debate amongst scholars, but now I think Jesus wants to speak to the heart of why they asked the question about fasting and why they don't rejoice over his coming like his disciples. So to get to the heart of their legalistic thinking and rejection of him, to speak to that, Jesus tells two short and very simple parables. Verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. That's just a bit of common sense. Don't get me wrong, I don't sew personally, but it makes sense. If you take an old shirt and patch it with an unshrunk piece of cloth, after you wash it and the whole thing dries, the unshrunk piece of cloth will shrink away from the old shirt and you'll have a bigger hole than you started with. It'll tear the shirt even worse. Jesus continues with another simple, common-sense parable. Verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In the ancient world, just so you understand this one a bit, in the ancient world, you would put wine in wineskins to ferment, right? Usually it would be a container made from goat skin. And when new wine was put into a skin to ferment, the gases from fermentation would stretch the skin, Right, so real quick, if anyone ever tells you the wine in the Bible didn't have alcohol in it, ask them how does Jesus' parable of the wine skins make sense? <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, when wine was put into wine skins to ferment, the gases from fermentation would make the skins stretch. And old wine skins that Jesus refers to, they were hard. They were kind of hard and brittle because why? They had already been stretched out to the max. They had already been used fermentation. So they're stretched out. They can't stretch out any further. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin to let it ferment, the new gases are going to burst that old brittle wineskin. So you need to put new wine into new skins. Now what in the world do these two short parables have to do with legalism, Pharisees, and fasting? Jesus is simply drawing parallels between the new thing He's come to do as the Messiah. This covenant of grace that He brings with Him. And the old worn out legalism of the Pharisees. He's contrasting the two. The Pharisees' religion and legalistic system is the old garment. It's the old wineskins. And Jesus and His message of the Gospel is the new cloth and the new wine. What Jesus is saying is that legalistic religion is not compatible with the Gospel. What the Pharisees believe about works-based salvation is incompatible with what Jesus has come to do. In other words, you can't patch a little bit of Jesus and His Gospel onto a works-based system. You can't do it. You can't put the new wine of the Gospel into the old wineskins of legalism. Jesus is in effect saying you don't need a new patch on your old worn out system. You need a new garment. You need a new system. You need new wineskins. You need a new way of thinking because the grace of God will not fit with legalism. Legalism cannot contain it. Jesus is telling them and us that you must break away from the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, that works-based righteousness, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. You have to make a clean break with it. There can be no mix of Christ and self-righteousness. Please hear me. Please hear me. You have to forsake any hope of trying to merit your own salvation. You have to abandon all of your attempts to make yourself right with God by rule-keeping. You must make a clean break with that kind of thinking if you were to come to Jesus and begin rejoicing with His people and receive the salvation that He's brought. You have to make a break with it. It's like Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you have an idea of religion. You have an idea of religion. But what I bring that makes my people rejoice... If you're going to join us, you have to leave it. You have to leave what you thought. You have to leave what's natural to you. And grace is unnatural to us, is it not? Tell me, the last time someone paid for your meal without telling you, were you not embarrassed? It's unnatural for us to receive grace. Jesus is saying you have to break with what comes naturally to you if you're going to enter the kingdom. You have to break with works-based salvation. So in a real sense, because it's so natural to us to be legalists, we have to forget what we think we know. We have to forget what we think sounds right about salvation and learn grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to empty our hands of self-righteous, dead works. We have to empty ourselves of self-salvation because it's only with two empty hands that we can lay hold of Christ by faith. Jesus came and brought the kingdom, and if we're to enter it, we must enter it on His terms. By faith alone, in Christ alone. Or, hear me, frankly, you will die in your sins and perish for eternity trying to earn your right standing with God. it's very simple. Jesus' point is simple. You can't add your righteousness to Christ's. You can't add your works to His finished work. That's why in Reformed theology, we refer to the finished work of Christ. There's nothing to add to it. And you can't make atonement for your sins. How can you, a sinner, atone for sins? You can't. There's nothing that we can do, there's nothing we can bring to God as the ground for our acceptance by Him. Trying to earn your salvation by rule-keeping is absolutely incompatible with God's plan of salvation by grace alone, which means you didn't earn it. Through faith alone, which means you simply trust God's promise to save in Christ alone because of what He has done, not because of what you do. Legalism is not compatible with that plan. So you have to abandon that kind of of thinking and come to Christ. Relying totally and completely on Him and trusting Him to save you. Or you'll perish trying to make yourself right with God. So have you broken with your natural religion? Ask yourself. Search your heart. Have you broken with your natural religion? As I said in the introduction, everyone is born a legalist. And it's only by God's grace that we become Christians. Are you trying to justify yourself and make yourself right with God? Are you looking to something that you do or something that you don't do? And it works the other way too. You can think you're righteous because of all the stuff you don't do. But are you looking to something that you do or you don't do as the grounds of your acceptance with God? Or, and I hope this is true of you, have you cast yourself upon Christ? (laughs) Saying, I have nothing... I am nothing. I'm a wretch. But I believe that He was righteous for me. I believe that He's taken the wrath of God for me. There's nothing I can do, but oh, He's done it for me. He's done it all. Are you still trying to make yourself right with God? Or have you come to the end of yourself and realize that there's nothing you can do to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinner? The legalist goes to hell. Plain and simple. The person who keeps trying to make himself right with God by rule-keeping and good works. Listen to me. That person, a legalist, scorns the Lord Jesus. It's not that you're just a misguided legalist. You mock Christ in your legalism. You mock Him in trying to make yourself right with God. The legalist says, I don't need Christ. I can do it myself. Blasphemy. Christ did not die because you could do it yourself. Or the legalist says, Jesus did most of the work, but I need to do the rest. Again, blasphemy. That Christ is not sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Break with your religious thoughts and trust in His grace. You cannot add to his atoning work because he satisfied all of God's wrath in your place. And you can't add to his perfect righteousness because it is perfect. To take away would make it imperfect. To add to it would make it perfect or make it imperfect. There's nothing left for you to do but trust in him and be a grateful recipient of what he has done for you. Tell me, I'm um, seriously, what can you add to what he's done? Nothing. He is our priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our righteousness. He is our everything. Trust Him. Trust Him and rest your weary, tired soul on His work. And, Christian, you get the last word do not fall back into legalistic ways of thinking. I'm going to read this to you shortly. I'm not going to do a whole other exposition. Don't worry. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4, The Apostle Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I'll explain that in a moment. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. Using circumcision as an example to represent any view of salvation by obedience Paul says that if you trust in yourself at all for salvation, then Christ is of no advantage to you. Paul warns Christians with that. To begin to look to our works is to make Christ of no use to us because you're saying he is not enough. Paul gives this warning to believers. If you seek to be justified by your obedience, you will be severed from Christ. This is a stern warning to those, or rather, this is a stern warning that those who really belong to Jesus will listen to. So I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation or doubt the doctrine of perseverance of saints that we all do so dearly. Those who belong to Christ will heed the warning. And the warning is do not go back to the slavery of legalism. It's a system of death and bondage and fear. Continue to daily trust in Christ as your right standing before God. Legalism is a cancer. It'll eat you up. It'll take your eyes off of Christ. It'll make you self-reliant and ultimately it will damn your soul. And some, some questions real quick to check yourself and see if you've fallen into a legalistic way of thinking that you need to forsake and repent of. Here's some questions that I have for you to think think on. The first is, do you fall into utter despair when you sin? I don't don't mean that you're, you're sorry that you sinned and you want to repent and you want to follow Christ more closely and you wish you hadn't sinned, but do you despair when you fall into sin? You become convinced that your salvation must be lost because you failed to obey you think that there's no way God will accept you now because you've committed this certain sin? Or maybe because you've committed this certain sin over and over, and you think there's no way that you can be saved? Or at least you've lost your salvation? Or two, do you think you are positionally closer to God when you're obedient? That you're actually more in His grace when you're obeying well? Three, do you think God loves you more when you're obedient and, and hates you or loves you less when you sin? That God's love for you wavers each day depending on how well you're behaving? If you answered yes to any of that, or even thought, ah, eh, maybe not really, no, 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 it's not me. Yeah, the answer is yes. If you answered yes to any of that, then you're gravitating toward legalism. And listen, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. That means that you need to repent. Particularly, you need to repent of mischaracterizing God. Let me ask you something. When you, when you look at the Word of God, right, look at it. Look at God's promise to save you through what Jesus has done. Look at God's promise to never abandon you, but be kind and gracious to you and bring you back to Himself. Look at God's promise that He is not a man, that He would change His mind. Look at Jesus who satisfied God's wrath and has given you His righteousness. Now let me ask you something. In light of all that, what has God ever done to make you think He can't be trusted? What has God ever done to make you think that His love for you must be earned if Christ died for us while we were yet sinners? What makes you think the love of God is something to be earned? What has God ever done to make you think that His own Son is not enough to save you? You shouldn't think of God that way. You shouldn't think of your relationship to God that way. Particularly because God has never given you a reason to think that your relationship to Him is dependent upon rule-keeping. Never. Never. Even under the old covenant, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation's always been by faith alone. God's never given you any reason to ever doubt that. It's always been because of what Christ did or in the Old Covenant, what He would do in the future or now that we're under the New Covenant looking back and seeing what He did in the past for us. It's always been by Christ. God's never taught another way of salvation. There's only ever been one. Your salvation is dependent upon Christ and Christ is enough. put this further. God saved you by grace when you first believed on Christ. Did he not, Christian? You were an unbeliever and had a list of sins. He saved you by grace when you believed. What makes you think, to paraphrase Paul, what makes you think that now what was begun by the grace of God will now be finished by your rule keeping? That's foolishness and it doesn't make sense. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our atonement. Christ is our all. So look to Him. Always look to Him. Fight your sin. Yes, I'm not an antinomian. I'm not saying you can live like the devil and actually be a Christian. I'm not saying that. So fight your sin. Yes. Repent when you fall into sin. Yes. Mourn your own sinfulness. Absolutely. But look to Him. Take two looks to Christ for every one look to yourself. Look to Him alone. Christ alone who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray.